Thank you, Grace, and thank you, Mark, for your leading us in music. Our text before us, uh, we've had a break here, and uh, uh, in my absence, over in ministering in uh, Hungary, uh, at, at, on your behalf, as part of our mission program, uh, I'll be giving a bit of a report on that tonight, talking about uh, what I was doing and some of the impact and, and some of the lessons learned. I, uh, I taught some lessons, about 15, taught the book of Exodus for about 15 hours, um, not in one sitting, 15 hours over the week. And then, but, but I learned a lot too. One of my goals in there is to spend time with the students one-on-one, some of those who are in my class and outside as well as staff and um, just trying to understand, you know, learn more about what God is doing in the world. And many uh, of the uh, students there, I'll mention, I'm sure tonight, they were something like uh, in that school right now, there's about 22 different nations represented in the student body. And most, most of that is wonderfully from Europe. But we'll talk about that tonight. But in my ministry there, I've been absent here. Had a wonderful message from God's Word last week uh, from Tom. And now we're going to come back to the Gospel of John. We're in John, Gospel of John chapter 16. Again, this is the Thursday night before the crucifixion, Good Friday. And the Lord's Day of Resurrection on the first day of the week. This, we're in chapter 16, which is between 13 and 17, or what we call the, the upper room discourse. When we think of the major sermons of Christ, we think of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the uh, Olivet Discourse on Mount of Olives, and this is the uh, upper room discourse, or we could call it the uh, farewell discourse. Always in my mind, these are the parting words of Jesus with his disciples. He'll have a few words with them at the Garden of Gethsemane, but here is where he shares his heart and prepares them for his departure. We're right in the middle of that, and, and it's interesting that one of the major themes, or a significant theme of this farewell discourse is that he's not going to leave them as orphans, abandoned, forsaken, but he's sending another comforter. And that comforter is the Holy Spirit. And so our Lord has significant teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this course, and we're right in the middle of that. Our, our text is verses 5 to 11, but to, to get a little bit of context, I'll, I'll go back to chapter 16, verse 1, and read through to verse 11. I encourage you to follow in your Bible as, as I read. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And that these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, 
because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In, in verses 1 to 4 in particular, he spoke of the, the persecution they would experience. So Jesus has been with them, and in that he's been protecting them as their shepherd in their midst. He has, he has kept away the wolves. He has, that was a time where in God's wisdom, uh, he didn't want them under attack. And so in his presence, they were protected from the opposition and danger of attack. When he leaves, he will be the first victim of persecution. But that will become a pattern for them. And so he spoke to them of the coming persecution and the reality of it. And he, and he makes it clear, I'm telling you now so you won't be surprised. And again, I think that's something I, I've, I've tried over the years to, to say to us. Uh, too often we are taken by surprise when we experience suffering or persecution. Uh, we shouldn't be. Uh, it's a, virtually something I would promise to you. Suffering is coming. Or perhaps you're there. But, he said, but, but it's when we're taken by surprise, we're, we're, we're more easily set off balance. And so he said, I'm telling you now, so it's not like somehow we lost control. Persecution is coming. But he also speaks in this passage about the ministry of the Holy Spirit during this time. And, and he speaks, in a sense, as the world is going to be attacking them, in a sense he's talking about and what they will be doing to the world. In verse 5 he says, Now I, I go away to him who sent me. And how often Jesus reminds them, he's not from here. And so he's going back to the one who sent him. That's to the, He could say to the Father, but he, he's emphasizing, I have been on a mission. I have been sent from the Father. And I'm going back to the Father. And none of you ask me, he says, where are you going? So he, what's he saying here is we could actually look back and say, well, wait a minute, didn't, he, uh, didn't Peter ask him about that? Didn't Peter ask him, you know, where are you going? And, um, and, and that would be true. Peter did ask where, they was, where he was going. But, but that's not the point here. Uh, what he's saying is, uh, now, right now you're not asking. And more importantly, why were they asking? When they were saying, where are you going? It wasn't out of concern for him. Rather, it was a concern for themselves. Oh, wait a minute. You're going to be gone from us. They were focusing on his absence instead of his destination and what was before him. You know, if you think about it, if he were to answer, where are you going? The answer could easily be, I'm going to the cross. Have you ever experienced that maybe in your own life when you're talking to someone and and, and, and dealing with such things and, and they're saying to you, you know, where are you going or something or you could just tell they're not that interested in, in your situation. They want to tell you about their situation. 
And maybe you've even told, told them about your situation and you can just tell they're not really listening. So often it's been said, listening is, is what you do while you're waiting to say what you want to say. Um, and so Jesus, I think he's, he's, may I say, I think it's a rebuke. Is that too far to go? I think he's pointing out something. Not that he's, no, maybe his, it is that his feelings are hurt here, but what I think what he's doing is he's saying, you're focusing on yourself, not me. Not the mission. And, 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 and frankly, that is one of the times when we're most weak. Is when our eyes are on ourselves. When our eyes are on ourselves, that's how we can quickly implode. You know, we can be, when we become self-focused, that's where, that's where we can quickly despair and, be, and just all we're seeing is our own suffering, our own loss, our own pain. And there are times when you know, it's hard to look past your own suffering, loss, and pain. But his point is, as long as you're focusing there, you'll be on weak ground. And so he calls us to keep our eyes on the Lord. And so let's look at this next verse here as he continues. In verse 6, he says, But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So as they're thinking about Jesus leaving, all they can think about is, we're going to miss him. What are we going to do? For three years, their life has been, in some ways, simple. When Jesus says it's time to go, we go. Where Jesus says to go, we go. When he says we stop here for the night, we stop here for the night. Uh, you know, in other words, it's, it's their whole, and the whole time in his presence, taught by him, guided by him, seeing God work mightily in them. And suddenly, that's going to be dramatically different. And that has them grieving for themselves. Focusing on, what about me? And he says, he says because of that, sorrow has filled your heart. And I'm sure as he's looking around that table of the 11, remember Judas is already gone. As he's looking around that table of these men, he can see it, he can hear it. Uh, their sense of grief, their sense of fear, their sense of concern. And their sense of self. Well, let me just pick on the disciples for just a little bit more on that and just say there's a lesson we can take this. They're setting for us a poor example here. Too often, we're in the presence of someone who's suffering himself. And all we can sense is our own loss, our own sorrow. And, and this just as a reminder to hear with hearing ears, to see with seeing eyes when someone is hurting. Jesus is going to the cross tomorrow. And I often talk about and think about the fact that growing up, you know, he knew who he was and what his mission was. At the age of 12, remember, when his, he was left behind in the temple, what did he say? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And that very temple, how many sacrifices he washed, how many Passover lambs sacrificed and thought, 
that's pointing to my future. And here he is now in this upper room with his disciples having celebrated the Passover meal that represents he is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world by his own death. And even more than the physical brutality on his mind is that in a matter of hours, he will bear the infinite wrath of his Father in our place. The wrath we deserve will be crushingly hurled upon him so that all he can cry out is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what's coming. And in his love, he's trying to prepare his disciples. But it's a one-way street. They're not preparing him. They're not hearing his pain. And just a reminder to us in all of our relationships, don't forget to listen. Don't forget to hear. Don't forget to see. And that's one of the things that's always amazed me about Jesus. Everyone that ever came to him, everyone who ever asked a question, Jesus didn't just hear the question, he heard the heart. (laughs) And he would push right past the question and say, what's going on in your heart? So may God give us the grace to hear when we're listening, to see when we're looking, and to speak to that heart. Well, in verse 7, he then gives a promise to the disciples of the coming Holy Spirit. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. They're sad, but he says, this is really good for you. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, again, the, Holy, the Lord's already been mentioning the Holy Spirit. You don't see a lot of that mentioned uh, in the Gospels. But, but our Lord in this discourse, in this teaching time, has mentioned the Holy Spirit in verse 16 of chapter 14. He says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. And again, you're... Uh, different translations will read that word, those words differently. Uh, the word for helper here in the Greek is paraclete. And sometimes you'll hear the Holy Spirit called that. And again, that basically has the idea of a, of a calling alongside. So sometimes you'll read a comforter, a helper, someone who comes alongside, I always see with an arm around your shoulder and say, let's do this. So here he comes. But sometimes, sometimes you put that arm around someone's shoulder and hold them close so you can read them the riot act in love. Say, you messed up again. Let's talk about this. So, so it's all of that. It's comforter, rebuker, counselor, guide. He says, but I'm going to send him. And he'll abide with you forever. Unlike Jesus who was there for those 30 some years. Chapter 14, verse 26, he said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So he's comforting them. He is going to remind you of all my teaching. This is especially, this isn't a a promise we have. Some of us, maybe as we get older, we oh, wouldn't that be great if he reminds us of everything? This is more talking of your ministry is to communicate my message. 
don't worry. The Holy Spirit will remind you and teach you what you need to communicate. That's our New Testament. But here he promised the Holy Spirit would be coming. In verse uh, 26 of chapter 15, when the, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So he's been mentioning him. But now it makes it clear another point that Jesus is making here is Jesus has to leave before the Spirit can be sent. Notice he says, it is, I tell you the truth, it is your advantage I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But I'm departing so I can send him to, to you. Again, he's, he promised he would coming, but in verse chapter 7 of John, uh, verse 39, Jesus made a point. It says, John says, This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the Holy Spirit's been active in ministry all along. But this special giving where he will indwell the believer permanently and empower the believer in this unique way, that's going to wait to the glorification of Christ. And now he's saying, I have to leave before he can come. Why? Well, think about it. The cross, the grave, the resurrection, and even the ascension all come before Pentecost and that giving of the Holy Spirit. So think about it. Jesus is basically saying he has to pay the penalty of our sin. He has to rise victorious over death and rise into the presence of his Father before sending the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's coming to indwell, to empower, to, to guide as he does, comes after the cross, after the payment of our sin, and after the resurrection. And so he's saying, I have to go. And that's good for you because now you will have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I have to just pause there and think. You know, sometimes we think back, wouldn't it have been great to be alive? And we think of different periods of history. Wouldn't it have been great to be alive when um, nobody had a car? You had to walk 20 miles to the grocery store. Maybe not. <laughs> But we look back to the Old Testament times. Wouldn't it be great to be alive in the days of Jesus? Wouldn't it be great to be alive in the days of Abraham? You know, we have an advantage over them. We have the Holy Spirit. Every believer in Jesus Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Abraham didn't have that. Moses didn't have that. Elijah didn't have that. David didn't have that. And so we are blessed. You know, the Holy Spirit would come upon them for, for enabling and for service for seasons. But God, the Holy Spirit, permanently indwells the life of every believer. That's only since Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Only since after the ascension of Christ. And that's what the, it says. He ascended 
so he could send the Holy Spirit to us. So he's getting them ready, but now, now he's going to then explain some aspects of his ministry in, in the rest of this section, verses 8 to 11. I'll, let me read that whole section again. Verses 8 to 11. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. A judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He, it does something that's very unusual, not very common in the scriptures. He speaks of the Holy Spirit in terms of his ministry to the world. Usually we think of the Holy Spirit in terms of his ministry to us. Giving of spiritual gifts, giving us of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, and so many other ministries in our lives. But here he's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world. And it's mostly, can we think of it negative? He's going to convict of, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. I always like to think of things in context. What was the previous context? The world is going to be opposed to you. He answers that by saying, and the Holy Spirit is going to deal with the world. It's, he's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And so, again, in the verses I've already mentioned before, we can see the Holy Spirit was to come and minister to the disciples. Remember, he said he's going to be a helper. He'll, he'll abide with you forever. He will bring to remembrance and teach you these things. But now he's speaking of how the, the Holy Spirit is going to minister to the world. It says, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I like to ask the scripture questions, and two questions seems come to, to mind in this section. What does it mean when he says he's going to convict the world? And how will he convict the world? Let's think about that first one. What does it mean when it says he's going to convict the world? The word convict has two main ideas. I'm going to read a couple of quotes to you that kind of maybe will help you. They were helpful to me. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, great Bible expositor, now with the Lord, said this, The verb that lies behind our word convict has two main meanings, to reprove or to convince. You know, reproving is more corrective, right? Convincing is to persuade. And he says, how do we know which one it is? Context will tell us. Um, and so those are the two possibilities. If I can go back to another Bible expositor, J. Vernon McGee. Now, if you are like I and you've heard him on the radio, just to, hear, just to mention his name, I can hear his voice. You know, he's one of those guys, you know, you're flipping through the radio, come to the Christian station. I don't think, he can't get out a half a sentence. You say, there's McGee. And, and here's what he said. <clears throat> By the way, something, sometimes you listen to him and you think, this guy's not so sharp, right? Have you ever, in his voice and maybe his way he talks, you think, oh, he's, he, he, he was quite sharp. Listen to this. He says this, the Greek word for reprove is elenko, which means to convict. 
I counted that word used in the trial of Socrates as recorded by Plato and found it 23 times. So that's, that doesn't sound like a hick. Uh, reading Plato's account of the trial of Socrates and counting up the Greek word elenko or reprove. Um, it's a legal term. When the Holy Spirit is come, he will convict the world in the way a judge or prosecuting attorney presents evidence to bring conviction. The Spirit of God wants to present evidence in your heart and my heart to bring us to a place of conviction. And that means, of course, a place of decision. So the Holy Spirit is going to be convicting the world of sin. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily a saving conviction. For some, it will, it will be a, a conviction that will lead to repentance. And for others, it will it, be a convicting that leads to hardening. But one of the things that, that he tells us the, the Holy Spirit will be doing is convicting the world. Showing the world their sin. And, and, and showing them their guilt. That, now we're talking about what does it mean to be convicting. And so let's, let's, look, at these, let's look at all three of these convictions. He, he, he now lays it out. Verse 9. Uh, conviction of sin... Because they do not believe in me. Now, think about that for a minute. The Holy Spirit is going to show the unbelieving world. When we, th- when we see world, we, what we're meaning is that organization. The word cosmos, world, means organization. That system that is in, in unbelief and rebellion against God. And it says the Holy Spirit's going to convict them of sin. So think about it. If I were to say to you, show someone convict them of their sin, where would you go to show them and convict them of their sin? You know, where I'd, I'd go to the Ten Commandments. You could run off those things really quickly and say, you know, you're guilty. Uh, it reminds me of the time a pastor had preached a sermon on the Ten Commandments, and as he was shaking hands as people were leaving the church that day, one of them said, well, well thank you, pastor. Nine out of ten, not too bad. <laughs> So he, he thought, I'm doing okay. If I, uh, I only broke one of the commandments. But here it says, the Holy Spirit is going to convict of sin, but Jesus doesn't mention the Ten Commandments. What is the sin of which he convicts the world? They do not believe in me. That's the most significant sin there is. They do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit will point to the unbelief of the heart. If you think, well, you want to take the Ten Commandments, I thought, okay, I'll I'll be honest. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And so you could say, well, they're they're violating number one. That that their, their God is not first in their heart. Or you could point to the, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That they're violating that. But if the whole point is, They don't believe in God. And again, believe here is not simply to believe he exists. But to believe in a sense of repentance and in a sense of embracing him as Savior. So the Holy Spirit will convict them, the world, of of their unbelief, of their rejection of Christ. 
that's the central sin the, the Holy Spirit will point to because that's the one that matters most. And this brings to mind what, what Paul says when, in, when he says in Romans 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation. Not ashamed, of course, that's a, that's a way of saying this is my glory. The gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation. And of course, as soon as you hear the word salvation, one of your questions should be, from what? And he tells us in verse 17 and then verse 18. I'll go to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's what he's going to save us from, the wrath of God. Why is God's wrath coming on us? Romans 1.18 will explain. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so what he's saying is, here's the man's problem. He suppresses what he knows to be true. Paul goes through and argues then. In creation, he can see the reality of God's existence and his character, his wisdom, his power, his might, his beauty. He even speaks of the fact that man in his heart knows God's law of morals. But he suppresses the truth and even decides, I'm not going to worship the God who created these things, so I'm going to worship what he created. Instead of worshiping a God who could design a bird. And isn't that amazing how there's so many different birds and how beautiful they are? Some people give their life to just chasing birds around and, and, and seeing how beautiful they are. And what he's saying is, instead of worshiping the one who created the bird, they're going to worship the bird. And he goes and gives other examples in Romans 1. But here's the point. What's that Paul pointing to? Unbelief. And what is he saying? It's not just, I'm not convinced. The unbeliever is actively suppressing what they know to be true in their heart. Have you ever heard the expression fake news? It's part of the human condition. We all do it. Fake news denying the truth of God and his rightful claim on my heart. See, if God exists, created all things, then the next thing that follows is, and I must give an account to him. No, don't want to do that. I'll suppress that. No, God doesn't exist. And so the Holy Spirit, that's what, that's, he's going to go straight there, straight to the, the heart of the issue. And he's going to convict the world of the sin of unbelief. He's going to show it, and that's where I think he's going to convict. He's going to show the world, the unbelieving heart, that it's not just an intellectual option to not believe in the God of the Bible. It's an act of rebellion. It's an act of rebellion. Just some thoughts on conviction of sin. John Blanchard said, the greater our view of Christ, the greater our view of sin. So he's going to convict us of sin, of unbelief. And here he's, it's, our, our view of sin is directly related to our view of Christ. One person said this, that conviction is not repentance. It is one thing to be awakened at five o'clock in the morning, but it's another thing to get up. So the Holy Spirit will convict of sin, but that doesn't mean the heart will respond with repentance. We'll talk about that a little bit later. 
Spurgeon, of course, I'll have to quote him. He says, if you can look on sin without sorrow, then you've never looked on Christ. So what is the fundamental sin? Unbelief, because it's an act of rebellion against what we know. We're, su- we're actively suppressing what we know in our heart to be true. So I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. So he's gonna, the Holy Spirit will convict, convict the world of sin, of unbelief. And then verse 10, it will convict the world of righteousness. Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So he convicts the world of their sin. And he convicts the world of Christ's righteousness. In, in contrast of man's sin and Christ's righteousness. Now the world might look at Christ, especially in the days of the disciples, and say, Jesus, he was a criminal. He was crucified. In fact, Jewish law says, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, and that cross was a tree. So they look at Jesus and say, he's accursed. The, the Jewish leaders say he was a heretic, an apostate, a false teacher. But the Holy Spirit will convince them of the righteousness of Christ. He may have been crucified on a cross, but he was raised victorious from the grave. And he ascended into glory to be seated at the right hand of the Father. That reminds me of Romans chapter 1, verse 4. It speaks of the fact that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was God's um, endorsement of Jesus Christ. It's been said that when Jesus died on the cross, of course, we know he said, it is finished. And the empty tomb is the Father's amen. In other words, price paid, the empty tomb is price accepted. Work completed. Death can't hold him. If he were still in the grave, that would seem to indicate that he was still paying for our sin. No, it's, it's all paid for. And he's raised, not only raised from the dead, raised before witnesses right up into, the, into glory where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Again, the opposite of, of, of condemnation. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 come to mind. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That follows right after the fact that he came, humbled himself, t- taking the form of a bondservant even, and, and even to death, death of a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him. And so we see the sinfulness of man in unbelief but the Holy Spirit will convict the heart of the righteousness of Christ. Christ is unique in history. We know that from the Bible. But we know it from history itself. Look at how many religions try to claim some kind of acknowledgement of Christ. All kinds of cults. Well, they'll say they honor him. And I've mentioned, you know, the Islam, he's, he's, he's recognized as a prophet. And so many want to honor him. Look at two. How often do you hear the names of other deities when people want to curse? 
whoever gets into a car accident and cries out, oh, Buddha. <laughs> it doesn't happen, does it? There's something unique about Jesus that the human heart knows. And the Holy Spirit will convict them of that. You know his righteousness. You know his righteousness. And so that's why you'll talk to so many people when they talk about Jesus. Oh, well, I know he was a good man and a good teacher. And of course, you know, that's that old C.S. Lewis and others have pointed out. You can't really call Jesus that. If he claimed to be God and he wasn't God, then he's either a, a, a lunatic or a liar. He, he's not a good man. But if he claimed to be God and is God, then he's Lord and you should worship him. The Holy Spirit will convict the heart of the righteousness of Christ. He convicts uh, the heart of, of the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of Christ. And that, that, that brings up a problem. If he's righteous and I'm not, how can I stand before such a one? And then verse 11, the Holy Spirit will con convict the world of judgment. But not judgment on the individual. Judge because the ruler of this world is judged. That's speaking of Satan. The prince of the power of the air he's called. This is his world. He is, he is the, the ruler of, of this system of rebellion. That's why Jesus can speak to the Jewish unbelievers and say, your father is not God. Your father is the devil. Spiritually. And so he will, the Holy Spirit will convict of the fact that Satan is judged. That's, that's in the past tense. He's judged. This is looking forward to, again, the ministry. When the Holy Spirit comes after the cross, after the empty tomb, after the ascension, he will convict the world of the fact that Satan is defeated. His, he is already judged. Now, the final penalty has yet to be borne out, and we see that sometimes in our legal systems, don't we? That someone's found guilty, and somehow they're still on the streets, or they might be in jail, but they're, they're, you know, when, when is the penalty coming? He is judged, he is defeated at the cross. And really, that's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the first preaching of the, of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, where God said to, to Satan, you know, your seed will bruise the Christ's heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. The cross is the crushing of Satan, his defeat. And so the Holy Spirit will convict the, the world's heart of that. So that's what he will do. That's what it means. Now here's my other question. How will the Holy Spirit do that? How will the Holy Spirit convict the, the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I'm glad you asked. Actually, that answer is in verse 7. So before talking about what he will do, he said how he will do it. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Do you see? Use good powers of observation. He's now, he, he then follows by talking about the Holy Spirit convicting the world but it doesn't send, he's sending the Holy Spirit to the world, does it? He sends the Holy Spirit to the believers. 
So that is our clue. How is the Holy Spirit going to convict the world? Through the believers who by our life, by our testimony, and the preaching of God's word, the giving forth of the gospel, that's what the Holy Spirit will use to convict the heart of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So as we're faithfully giving forth the gospel and living forth the gospel, the world's convicted. To me, that's wonderfully helpful. Because one of the problems is, and I've mentioned this again and again to individually and, as, and before you, one of the weaknesses we have is we can't change a heart, can we? Teachers wrestle with that. All, you know, I can fill your mind with information. Uh, parents wrestle with that. I've told and told and told. Did I tell too much? Did I tell wrongly? But ultimately the issue is I can't turn that heart. The Holy Spirit can. And what he's saying here is as we're preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit will take our words and even our life. Have you ever noticed that believers will even watch your life and, and they'll be convicted? But that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be repentant. There's two responses to that conviction. One is that they'll hear God's word the Holy Spirit will drive it to their heart in conviction and that conviction will lead them to repentance. I want to turn away from my sin. I want to turn to that Holy Savior. I want to break with Satan and his crew. And they'll turn to Christ and believe. That's one response to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And those of us who know Christ as Savior, that's exactly what happened to us. Some, and I shared with you how often I think about that when we sing different songs. I remember the very moment when, when the light went on and God the Holy Spirit just turned my heart. And I believed and trusted in Jesus Christ and have never looked back. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit took God's word, convicted your heart, and opened your eyes to turn in repentance. One response is repenting belief. The other response, when convicted by the Spirit, is a hardening of the heart in unbelief. Knows the truth and won't hear it. I just, as you know, taught the book of Exodus, and so my mind turns to Exodus and Pharaoh. Oh, he was shown. Remember, at first, Pharaoh, you know, Moses could show uh, some, some minor miracles, can we call it, turning a staff into a... A, a serpent? Dan, can your serpents, uh, your staffs turn into serpents? No, so, but, but remember, Pharaoh's magicians could do something that looked like that, and we could turn the water into blood. We could do, but at one point, finally, with the plague start hitting hard, they come and say, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. You're messing with God here. And what's his response? He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. Moses even said, I'll give you the privilege. You can say when I'll turn off the plague. Tomorrow, done. Next day, plague gone. And still, what was his response as the Holy Spirit was convicting, uh, if you will, his heart? Hardening. So there's two responses when the Holy Spirit convicts the heart. 
Belief or unbelief? Repentance or hardening? You've heard the illustration. I've used it. The sun shines down and, and, and gives its warmth. When it shines down on, on wax, the wax softens and melts. When it shines down on clay, it hardens and becomes brittle. The same rays from the sun, two different results. And that's, what we, that's what's true of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The fact that he convicts doesn't mean that he turns every heart to faith. And by the way, I don't think this means that he, he's convicting the whole world right now. It's, what did he say? I will give the Holy Spirit to you and he will convict the world through us. So, what, so what's that supposed to do for us? For one thing, that tells us we are supposed to be instruments in the hand of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our conduct, and in our, especially in our words as we share the gospel, our trust in Jesus Christ. That is how the Holy Spirit convicts hearts. But there's the other side of that. That's our responsibility. But then here is the wonderful joy. It is not our responsibility. It's not our ability to turn the heart. Our task is to deliver the message. It's the Holy Spirit's task to work in the heart. Our calling is to be faithful to the message. But it's the Holy Spirit who empowers it. And there's a great encouragement. When we are sharing the gospel, God, the Holy Spirit, is putting power to the heart. Now, again, some of you would know your own experience. You heard, first time you heard the gospel wasn't the necessarily the first time you believed, was it? It wasn't for me. It was a process. But God, the Holy Spirit, can convict and, and work over time. And some will become hardened. They've heard the gospel, but they reject it. Example that comes to mind, I think it was Khrushchev, the um, Russian dictator. I understand that he had all four gospels memorized, and I don't, that doesn't mean he could say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He memorized the text of the gospels. He knew the message, but he re rebelled against it. He had a hardened heart. Our task is to faithfully bring the message. You know, what's the old thing? You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Our job is to put the water there. It's the Holy Spirit's job to work on the heart. Now, as I'm saying these things, I'm always aware of the fact that, and I take into heart that there may be someone here who is yet to believe the Lord Jesus Christ, someone hearing these words. I'm speaking to you as one of the member of the world, if that's the case, still outside of Christ, and I have to ask you, can you sense the Holy Spirit's conviction in your heart? The persuasion that he's showing you the gospel is true, that Christ is, is the Savior who died for our sin and rose again? And if you can sense that, 
What's your response? Don't make the mistake of, of hearing God's grace and resisting it, rebelling against it, hardening your heart. And that's what I think we're told about the, the third part of his, what the Holy Spirit speaks of. He's convicting of the judgment of the ruler of this world. The ultimate example of someone who knew the truth and rebelled against it. Satan. Satan was a created angel who saw Jesus Christ in, in, in the, in, before he came into heaven, before he came into earth. He knew him as the Son of God in all his glory. And what was his response to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? He rebelled and said, I'm going my way. He knew the truth. He rebelled against it. Don't make that mistake because what's the ultimate end of Satan? Judgment. He's already condemned. He was defeated at the cross. Don't join him in that, but instead turn, hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. What Jesus was telling his disciples is, I'm leaving but I'm not leaving you alone. I'll send the Holy Spirit who will empower your faithful witness and bring a spiritual power to the heart. Thank God for his mercy. Lord, we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. Those of us who know Christ as Savior, we, we are here today before you grateful that you opened our eyes that we can see Christ and trust our Savior. Father, I pray that for any hearing this who have yet to believe. Father, thank you for the reminder. It's not, we are not the one who turns a heart. And we trust you, working through your Holy Spirit to be at work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.